back. Thank Ross for the welcome and for the use of his highly sophisticated tool. I was sitting beside someone the other day and he had, he had everything going on this phone that he had. And I'm sitting with a 1936 Parker Duofold fountain pen <laughs> taking notes and thinking, you're out of date, Mitchell. <laughs> but I want to read from Jeremiah and chapter 1 in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, and I'm reading from a modern paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. Have you ever heard of it? The Message. And this is uh, Ross's uh, gadget, kindly loaned. Demolish and then start over. The message of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the family of priests who lived in Anathoth in the country of Benjamin. God's message began to come to him during the 13th year that Josiah, son of Ammon, reigned over Judah. It continued to come to him during the time Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, reigned over Judah. And it continued to come to him clear down to the fifth month of the 11th year of the reign of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, over Judah, the year that Jerusalem was taken into exile. This is what God said. Before I shaped you in the womb, I knew all about you. Before you saw the light of day, I had holy plans for you. But I said, hold it, Master God. Look at me. I don't know anything. I'm only a boy. God told me, don't say I'm only a boy. I'll tell you where to go and you'll go there. I'll tell you what to say and you'll say it. Don't be afraid of a soul. I'll be right there looking after you. God's decree. God reached out, touched my mouth and said, look, I have just put my words in your mouth, hand delivered. <laughs> See what I've done? I've given you a job to do among nations and governments, a red-letter day. Your job is to pull up and tear down, take apart and demolish, and then start over building and planting. God's message came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I said a walking stick. That's all. And God said, good eyes, I'm sticking with you. <laughs> I'll make every word I give you come true. God's message came again. So what do you see now? I said, I see a boiling pot tipped down toward us. Then God told me, disaster will pour out of the north on everyone living in this land. Watch for this. I'm calling all the kings out of the north. God's decree. They'll come. I've jumped a page or something. Hold on. Be patient with me. Yeah. They'll come and set up headquarters facing Jerusalem's gates, facing all the city walls, facing all the villages of Judah. I'll pronounce my judgment on the people of Judah for walking out on me. What a terrible thing to do. And courting other gods with their offerings, worshipping as gods sticks they'd carved 
stones they'd painted. But you, up on your feet and get dressed for work. Stand up and say your piece. Say exactly what I tell you to say. Don't pull your punches or I'll pull you out of the lineup. Stand at attention while I prepare you for work. I'm making you as impregnable as a castle, immovable as a steel post, solid as a concrete block wall. You're a one-man defense system against this culture, against Judah's kings and princes, against the priests and local leaders. They'll fight you, but they won't even scratch you. I'll back you up every inch of the way. God's decree. It's quite refreshing sometimes, isn't it? To have a look at a modern translation. I've had quite a busy week. I was involved in a, another flitting this week. <laughs> uh, I was going preaching to Lamb Hill Mission. Met a couple there uh, and a wee boy, Angelo. They fled from Rwanda under fear of their lives and they went to Zambia and uh, they heard in Zambia that they were being hunted down to be killed and they fled from Zambia to Scotland and they're living in uh, Mary Hill roughly, Somerson, Mary Hill, six stories up in a 20-story flat, a wee bit of a change for them and uh, they've got furniture loaned by the refugee committee, Glasgow has a refugee committee and they've given them some furniture. And we heard they were emptying a house in Helmsborough. So um, my big son hired a van on Monday. We got two wardrobes, and two beds, and a big carpet, three chairs, and various other bits and pieces, dishes, cutlery, crockery, pots and pans. <laughs> and they're just praising the Lord um, that Jesus has been so kind to them. And then this morning went to church and saw a guy sitting in his own jean was with me and went over and sat beside this guy. And I said, how do I know your face, Anne? I think I know you. And he smiled and looked at me and he said, Berlin Prison Bible Class. <laughs> he said, I've trusted the Lord and I'm now worshipping in God's house every Sunday. And I was so glad to see him. Um, he was in the, the Bible class. Now, these Sundays, have been looking at Old Testament characters, and I thought of Jeremiah for two reasons. I've got connecting points with today's society and Jeremiah's call, and I've also been thinking recently about how God called me into ministry. Uh, the story was uh, Clyde Ironworks, Blast Furnace Lab, I was getting towards the end of the higher national certificate, and we had three big 100-ton blast furnaces spewing out uh, dirt and making iron. And uh, if the three furnaces were all working, uh, a shift in the blast furnace lab had you running around like a scalded cat, doing analysis all night or all back shift or all day shift. But if only one furnace was going, and the Scottish steel industry was boom and bust, as you know. If only one furnace was going and the furnace tapped early in the shift, once you'd done the analysis and once you'd cleaned up the lab and sorted out your chemicals, the rest of the night was your own, 11 till 8 on the night shift. 
And so I was getting near the end of my course, and people were saying things to me. And I thought, I'll read up the call of God to men in the past. And I read the call of Abraham and the call of Moses. And the call of Jeremiah was the one that really fastened onto me. He became a prophet. Definition of a prophet I've given you before, so I wouldn't labor it, but he's a man of value. The oldest term for a prophet is a man of, of value, a man of God, Ishelohim, which is either, uh, what could you say, adjectival, um, or it's uh, genitival, if you're into grammar. <laughs> it either means someone who is godly, who reminds people of God. He belongs to God. He is owned by God and possessed by God. And that's a good thing to think about on Pentecost Sunday, isn't it? Um, and the second thing is maybe a description <clears throat> of his demeanor, his character, um, that there's a, a kind of contact point about him that disturbs other folk around him because he's a godly man. Um, so he's a man of vision. <clears throat> Usually a, a man of value, a man of vision, a man of vision that sees things. The two words are a seer or a, a visionary, a, a Jose or a Rue are the two words that are used. And he sees things differently from other folk. Two men look through prison bars, one saw dust and the other saw stars. There's different ways of looking at things. And when Amos, for example, the prophet was uh, <coughs> prophesying, uh, he looked at things differently. If you were a, a tourist guide going around Israel in the 8th century BC, you'd be quite impressed by the marble and the big buildings going up and all that kind of stuff. Amos wasn't the least impressed. He was upset that they were cheating and lying and stealing, and they were giving God's servants a hard time of it. So he saw things differently. He was a man of vision. He shared God's vision of his own society. And then the third thing about him is a man of vocation. The prophet was a man of vocation. He felt a call from God to do something. And we read about Jeremiah's call just a few minutes ago, how God called him to follow him and serve him and do what God told him. And, you know, Amos says, I, I, I was a herdsman following the flock. And he, he looked after the Nakadim, the, the bow-legged, ugly-faced sheep on the hills of Tekoa. And... Uh, God called me from following in the flock and said, go and speak to my people Israel. He eked out his living by traveling down a thousand feet down the slope and harvesting figs. I'm not sure what he did, whether he scraped them or nipped them or what he did, but he worked. He eked out his living as a shepherd by gathering figs. And God called him to follow, to give up following the flock and to speak to his people Israel. And when we come to Jeremiah, he came from a priestly family. Jeremiah and Ezekiel are similar in various ways. They're both prophets of the individual and prophets of the new covenant. 
But uh, somebody said Jeremiah is a prophet who happened to be a priest. Ezekiel is a priest who happened to be a prophet the other way around. He came from Anathoth, a village north of Jerusalem, where his priestly family served their duty on the rota for the temple. His, his ancestry and pedigree stretched back to Abiathar, and uh, he had a family. And he had enemies. The enemies of the, the land at that time um, were threefold, three big superpowers. In the whole of their history, there were only two periods when Israel had relative freedom and prosperity. One was during the reigns of uh, David and Solomon, and the other was later on uh, during the reigns of Jeroboam II and Isaiah. Apart from that, Israel was always either a, a land bridge, a buffer state, or a political football, or all three. Um, the three great nations were Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon in that period. And there were false prophets about. And Jeremiah met up with them in the course of the book. Sometime you may dip into the book and read his amazing life story. <coughs> and the kings, they were in turmoil, were in the latter part of the kingdom. And Josiah was at the beginning of... Uh, it was near the beginning of his reign that Jeremiah was called into prophecy. Jeremiah was the last king to attempt reformation in his country. And uh, the, the reformation was accentuated when the boy king discovered uh, that they had a manuscript they'd found in the temple. And the manuscript became the blueprint for the reformation. Most scholars would think, that the, the, the book found in the temple was either all or part of the book of Deuteronomy, and it formed the, the scale of the operation of the Reformation. Unfortunately, um, Josiah decided to try and stop uh, the forces of Egypt passing through, and at the Battle of Megiddo, um, <clears throat> King Josiah met his death, and there was... A lot of difficulty. Uh, Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, um, he was established. Uh, he only reigned for three months. And Pharaoh Necho of Egypt deposed him and replaced him with Eliakim, who was called Jehoiakim, who was succeeded by Jehoiachin, which is a bit confusing for us. Jehoiachim, uh, Jehoiakim's 18-year-old uh, son, Jehoiachin, uh, was, was taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar replaced Jehoiachin by Mataniah, Josiah's youngest son and Jehoiachin's uncle. His throne name <coughs> was um, Jehoiachin. And then um, Zedekiah reigned from 5975-86 BC, and he rebelled against Babylon, which was ultimate lunacy that he should think he could resist the power of Babylon. The last thing that happened to him was that they got his sons to stand before him, and the last sight the poor man saw were his sons being killed by the Babylonians, and then they put out both his eyes and took him captive to Babylon. So there's a whole lot of turmoil going on when Josiah became 
when Jeremiah became a prophet. A bit about his call. Wonderful things about it. Before I formed you in the womb, God says, I knew you. You ever thought about that? Prenatal knowledge and call. One of the Psalms talks about God knitting me in my mother's womb. <laughs> that even God was intimately involved in over through and off, you know. Inside your mother's womb, God planned your life. He knew about you. And uh, God mentions this. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. You ever thought of this and when you think and you reflect on your life and all the things that have happened to you, um, that God was in it all? Um, there's a, the Americans sing a song. I'm not familiar with it uh, in detail, but it went like this. I can't sing it to you. I don't even know the tune. But the words say, he was there all the time. He was there all the time. He knew you. And in the, in the light of it all, uh, Jeremiah feels his own sense of youth and inadequacy for the task that God called him to. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, verse 6 of chapter 1, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child, and use the word na'ar, which is used of a, a teenager, probably an older teenager, not yet in full uh, standing in Israelite society, about, probably about 18 years old when God called him. And God said, don't say I am only a na'ar. Uh, you have to go to everybody I send you and tell them what I tell you. A personal call. And the personal call, we'll say more about that before we're finished. And there was a defined ministry for him. Not a very good ministry. I don't think Ross or I would have signed up for that kind of ministry. It was four parts destructive and two parts constructive. Look at it. Verse 10. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Four parts negative, two parts positive. And he was hated. We'll go into the reasons why he was hated further on. And there were confirmatory visions for uh, Jeremiah. God put a stamp on Jeremiah that would burn into his memory and into his mind for the rest of his dangerous life. What do you see, Jeremiah? And that translation says a stick. You know, it's more than a stick. It was a branch of the almond tree. And the almond tree was the first tree to blossom in the springtime. Uh, and there's a play in words between the watch. It was called the watchful tree because it came first in the springtime. And God says, that's, a, yes, that's correct, Jeremiah. You see the branch of an almond tree. I'm watching over my word to perform it. There was a word play between the word for an almond tree and the word for watch. Um, and God was really saying to Jeremiah at the outset of his call, Jeremiah, I'm at work all the time in the silent forces of nature. Isn't it marvelous to be uh, driving around this part of the country at this time of the year? It seems to be a late spring. 
and there's more blossom in the trees than we've seen for a long, long time. It's absolutely thrilling to see the beauties of nature around us. And God is the Lord of creation, and God is working in the silent forces of nature, achieving his purposes. And today's news and all the things that go on from day to day um, are a kind of testament to this. You've not to be despairing, Jeremiah. I am at work. I'm watching over my word to perform it. And Paul argues in Romans, sometimes God sends people, Romans 1 argues this, sometimes God just sends people to be confirmed in their evil until people get to the end of themselves and turn to God. Our nation's in that sort of state right now, and we see it in our news. And God comes to us and he says, look, don't despair. I am still on the throne I am still watching over my word. I am still seeing it being performed. And all you, ta- all you hear is ISIS, is that right? Um, the, uh, the Islamic extremists and so on. And I was reading a book, I bought a book at Keswick last year. Sometimes I read the books I buy and sometimes I don't read them all, I dip into them. But there was a book I read at Keswick and it said there were more Muslims coming to Christ now than ever before in the history of the world. Isn't that amazing when you see what you read and what you hear? Larger numbers, and it was sort of statistically defined and researched and easily proved by those who went into the uh, details of it, that God is at work. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, and God says, I'm watching over my work to perform it. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see a boiling pot with the spout pointing from the north. And God says, you're dead right, Jeremiah. I'm going to invade this land of Judah. Because you see, history is God's workshop and nations are his tools. And it's terribly sad to see the spill off from people's evil in the world today. Cry for the children, <clears throat> don't we? In Syria, Libya, and all these other parts of the world, we, we cry for God's children, the Christians in Egypt and North Korea and Afghanistan, especially for the women in Afghanistan. What a life they've got. Absolutely awful. And then God says, I'm in charge. She says, I'm in charge. I'm bringing this to fruition in the nations. He said, I am not only in charge of the silent creative forces of nature. I am also in charge in the violent human forces of destruction. And that's quite a tall order, isn't it? Sovereign God in nature. Sovereign God in worship, warfare. God is still on the throne and the fight goes on and he is still triumphing. Amazing. A wee bit about Jeremiah's message. I want you to imagine, you ever heard of a man called President Trump? (laughs) Imagine President Trump if he went on stage 
in one of his speeches that he makes, and he says, well, first of all, friends, fellow Americans, um, I want to tell you that God is on the side of the Russians. <laughs> That's more or less the gist of Jeremiah's message to his own people. God, God is on the side of the Babylonians. <laughs> and then he says, God, God raised Mr. Putin up for the destruction of the USA. What would happen to him then? He's in bad enough trouble for some of the other things he says. He would get strung up by the thumbs if he tried that stunt. And then the third thing, supposing he said, God cares nothing for the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution or the heritage of religious worship our nation knows because of what's going on in our society and the human behavior of the people of America. These are an offense to God. Jeremiah found that in his nation. Here were these people that God had taken out of Egypt. He had delivered them. He put them in Canaan, in a wonderful place. And he looked after them. And they, they rejected him. Um, the, the prophecy of Hosea is a kind of parable of how a husband left a wife, a wife left a husband and they went off with somebody else. And he says, it's as if my people have gone off me. <laughs> and they're worshipping these stones and these bits of wood that they carved. Isaiah makes a real fool of it. He says, a man cuts a tree in two and he chops one half up and makes it into a fire. And the other half he carves and he worships and says, you are my God. He says, it's absolutely crazy what's going on. Um, And he says, here's what's going on in our country. And these things are an offense to God. And he says, Christians should renounce their loyalty to countries and succumb to support um, the incoming invader. How, do, how popular do you think that would make Jeremiah? Well, he wasn't very popular at all. He was under house arrest for a time. He was banned from going to the temple he didn't even have a wife to moan at. He couldn't go home and moan at his wife and talk things out with her. He wasn't allowed to get married. He was flung down a pit of sewage and rescued by the skin of his teeth. He was beaten up. Uh, the king uh, took a collection of his prophecies and, that were copied out on manuscript and burned them in the fire. It was terrible the things that happened to Jeremiah. And he never gave up. Once he tried to give up, he says, well, here's what I'll do. I won't speak about God at all. I won't, I won't deliver his message to my people because it just gets me into constant trouble. And I'll give it up. And he said, when I tried to give it up, he said, it was like a fire locked up in my bones. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't stop preaching the word. And as Christians today, this is our duty. John Stott says Christianity is a subversive counterculture. And that's us today. And here's this prophet. He was friendless. He was not allowed to have the comfort of a wife. The fire of his message was burning in his bones. And he worked at it 
We can confidently predict the dates of Jeremiah's ministry. He worked at it for over 40 years as God's prophet. Amazing. And he never gave up. The old Scottish golf manual, final instructions said, finally, never give up. Your opponent might die. <laughs> and sometimes we've seen that happen. <laughs> it's bad, it's sad. And sometimes strange things happen. I won a cup once at golf, do you know that? I've still got it up the loft, it's a bit tatty now. It was a 36-hole competition. You had to play 18 holes in the morning and 18 holes in the afternoon. And it rained and it poured and it, the wind blew. And it was absolutely awful. And then I put in my scorecard and then they got in touch with me. I had won the Coronation Cup. And then I discovered nobody else had finished. <laughs> I won it by default. <laughs> and that's one of God's jokes <laughs> to me. <laughs> he won a cup once at golf. <laughs> but you know, there were wonderful signs of hope for Jeremiah too. He spoke about the good figs. He says, here are the good figs. There's the good figs and the bad figs. The good figs are those who succumb to the enemy and take what's happened to them as at this time the will of God and go off and trade as Jews were good at doing, and get married and have families and settle down. You're the good figs. Those are the bad figs who rebel and moan and groan and complain. And then the second thing he did that was a sign of hope, he put a, net, a, a, a cap, you know how Mrs. May's putting a cap in something, I'm not too sure what it is, but he put a cap on the exile. So the exile's going to last 70 years. Now that's better news than that you'll never get back to your homeland, isn't it? <laughs> the exile's going to last for 70 years and then you'll get back to your land. And that was literally true. And then they were all talking about Jeremiah one other time. Said, you know what he's done? You know what that daft prophet's done? He went to Anathoth, his home village, and he bought a field. <laughs> Now, you don't buy a real estate, as the Americans say, unless you mean to live in the land. <laughs> and that was a sign of hope. Is it? There must be hope for us if he went away and bought a field. What does he know that we don't? <laughs> and then the most wonderful sign of all comes in chapter 31. And with this we finish. Jeremiah 31 and verses 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with her forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, 
for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Isn't that a wonderful passage of hope? He's prophesying the Christian era. Because when Jesus rose from the dead after his crucifixion and he ascended to God, his first kingly act was to, to send his Holy Spirit abroad to be in the hearts and lives of his people, to make Jesus real. You know, the Holy Spirit's the kind of shy member of the Trinity I sometimes describe him as. And he's there as the Spirit of Jesus. He's there to make Jesus real in our lives and in our hearts. Not only the things you say to you so clear, to me so dim, but that your presence brought a sense of him. And from your eyes he beckons me. And from your heart his love is shed till I lose sight of you and see the Christ instead. That's the wonders of the gospel. That those people, that man I was sitting beside today, that man I was sitting beside today, he's come to know the Lord. And you recognize it in his face and in his demeanor and in his speech. It was wonderful. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? That God's people doing what they're doing where they are as God tells them, as Jeremiah did, are blessed of the Lord. Let's pray together. Well, by the way, Ezekiel chapter 36 is more or less an exact parallel of Jeremiah <laughs> chapter 31. There's a man, uh, Thomas Guthrie, a very famous man in Edinburgh. He was very kind to poor boys and girls in Edinburgh. And he had his own school in Edinburgh, and he was a wonderful preacher. He wrote a marvelous book. Sell your shirt if you ever see it. It's called The Gospel in Ezekiel. Big, thick tome. And it's all about the new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day, Pentecost Sunday. We thank you for your mighty Holy Spirit. And we know that you call us to be filled, to keep on being filled by the Holy Spirit, not to get drunk with wine, which depresses us, but to be filled with the Spirit, which intensifies and stimulates us to think that God has placed us here at this time to proclaim his message and to live for his glory. We pray for the church and congregation, for Ross and his Debbie and the dear family, and for all the congregation here. We pray for your presence to be made known through them in the community and bless every avenue of the gospel ministry in this church, we pray. And we thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.